Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, everyone. This is Paul Brennan, PGA professional here on Believe in Tennessee Golf on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? Our show is a breakdown of all things golf in the volunteer state. We will cover men's and women's golf tournaments, professional amateur events, and dive into junior golf as well. We'll talk to the players, the instructors, and the organizers. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. You can also find us on your favorite directories, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminaire, TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com or at Believe Podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at pbrandon21 or on Twitter at QIC underscore golf pro. So I hope everyone had an amazing Memorial Day weekend. There was a lot of golf played, a lot of fun had. Uh, I know we spent our weekend out on the river having some fun tubing and stuff like that. So hope everybody either got a chance to play golf or get away and recharge. So let's go ahead and dive into the Monday Pro-Ams. So this past week uh, in Chattanooga at Council Fire, congratulations to Tom Durbin. And Richard Redney both shooting 71. Hunt getting coming in third place. Moving over to the Tri-Cities at Link Hills. Uh, Chris Woods, friends of the show, tied with Ethan Berger. Uh, congrats on both those guys over there. Uh, up at Oak Ridge in Knoxville, Glenn Hudson shoots a 70. Good playing, Glenn. And finishing off in the mid-state at Champions Run, Jared Melson fires a 65. Jared has been playing some really good golf lately. Um, we're going to dive into the City of Crossville. I know we had talked about him the week before the visit Knoxville, uh, shooting, I think, a pair of 66s it was, uh, shooting 12 under and winning by like six shots. So Jared's really been on fire. Um, so if we go ahead and move into the City of Crossville program, looking at the team division, um, 24 under by King, Houston, Stewart, and Stoneman wins it. Uh, Harston, Botts, Turner, and Manning coming in at 23. Hunter, Knight, that is Miss Allie, Young, and Keeglin shooting 21. Hudson, I uh, just talked about him. Morton, Wheeler, Newton shooting 20. Uh, Brandon, hey, that's actually me. Uh, Personette, Olsen, Lindsay uh, tied for fifth at 19 under with Bergen, Cochran, Wheeler, Graham, Dibble, Patello, Gallier and Gallier all at 19 under. So, um, congratulations to the teams finishing in the top five there. Uh, toot my own horn just a little bit, but we'll see how how I did in the individuals. Um, so, moving on to the individuals, we'll start in the senior. So, talking about Jared's 65 there at Champions Run. Well, he's got 65, 73, shooting a total of six under, winning by two shots at in the senior professional division at the City of Crossville Pro-Am. Tying for second were Audie Johnson and Jeff Houston at two under. Uh, Lauren Personet, my partner for the event, or one of my partners for the event, and Buddy Harston tying for four. So that rounding out your top five, they were at even par. Moving into the regular professional, we're going to go deep. Oh, actually, we'll go with the Senior Am first. Uh, looking at the Senior Am, uh, Jeff Gawyer at two under. Uh, Gary Maxwell at even, Tracy Graham at one over, tying at fourth and fifth, James McCord and Ray Morton at two over. Moving over to the regular amateur, um, B. Turner at two under, Jay Wheeler tying, uh, I'm sorry, Turner shooting two under the second day for eight under, Wheeler two under for a five under, 
Lathrop and Y shooting one over, Giles Stoneman tying at two over. Moving our way into the regular professional, um, Adam Forge shoots four under for the week, winning the event. Cochran and King tie at two under. Poff and Hunter tie for fourth, along with Allie at one under. Kelvin Bergen, one over. Jake Reeves, two over, tied with Brian Wood at 12th. And yours truly rolling out the top 10. So again, I actually got to mention I played golf and I finished in the top 10. So enough about me. <laughs> um, this past week, you can check out the information on the Tennessean.com, but they hosted the 95th playing of the Tennessee School Days event. Um, junior event, girls, boys come together, play for the week. Top so many from each age division in um Team markers are paired together in match play, and they play out through the week. So a lot of good fun for the kids to get out there, work on their game, uh, check out SNED's tour. Uh, they've got a ton of events going on. Everything will be played basically from now to the end of July. So lots of tournaments popping up. Check those out. So going into the listener questions, first one comes in from Tony. And Tony's wanting to know, how does an adjustable driver work? So, Tony, what you get is that you've got a couple of things. Um, there's a lot of manufacturers, and everybody's doing some type of an adjustable driver. All of them have some type of hosel positions, uh, and what the hosels do is change the effect of loft. Now, they never change the angle of the face itself, but they change the angle relationship between the shaft and the club. So, if you add loft, it pushes the shaft backwards, adding loft to the face, or if you take loft off, it moves the shaft forward, giving you a forward press, de-lofting it. Um, now, the as you change the lofts, that also has an effect on curvature. So as you de-loft a driver, it actually opens the face, making it more fade bias. As you add loft to a driver, it actually closes the face, making it more draw bias. Lower fade, higher draw. Now we get into upright, which will then change, make the club more toe up, which will help with a little bit more of a draw curvature. Then you get into the head weighting. Um, now most everybody has some type of adjustable head weight this year. Uh, I know Titleist on the TSI-3 has a couple of draw and fade positions as well as a neutral, so you can move the weight on the bottom of the club to move the center of gravity more towards the heel, uh, which will make the toe swing faster. Um, or you can move the weight out towards the toe, making it fade bias, making the toe swing slower. Um, Ping also has uh, some adjustable weights in the 425 Max, uh, Callaway in the Epic Max, and Epic Max LS have a slidable weight. Um... Looking at um, the Callaway Epic Speed. Now, this is going to be a fixed weight driver, meaning you can't move the weight around. And that's what you're going to run into the Sim 2 series as well. So, they're using all their hosel uh, internal um, mechanisms to give you the adjustability. So, as you start to play with these different clubs, what you'll notice, Tony, is moving the weights around is going to change your curvature downrange. So, we can make the clubs more draw bias, more fade bias. Have you hit them higher? Have you hit them lower? Spin them more, spin them less. Just figuring out what you need to work on. So, if you're thinking about looking at one of these adjustable drivers, definitely set up a fitting with a local club pro uh, or, or go to one of your big box stores, get on the launch monitor. Hit some golf balls, see what's going on, and take your club in to make 
a comparison. So the next one coming in is from Steve, and Steve wants to know how a handicap works. Um, so Steve, the, the biggest thing about the handicap is it gives you a playable number. Now, not all golf courses are the same. We're going to have, um, actually with the Women's U.S. Open this past week, we saw a very tough uh, Olympic golf course there in uh, St. Louis, or not St. Louis, San Francisco, um, and, and played very tough. And we saw the men play there several years ago in some events as well. And then, you know, you play your, your more average, traditional metro downtown golf courses, and they're going to play a little bit easier. Um, and so a five handicap is not going to shoot the same score at both these courses. So what they've done is you figure out what you sh your score was compared to the, the slope rating. And the slope rating is the average score a zero handicap would shoot at the golf course. So you may have some golf courses that are rated as a 68, some golf courses are rated as a 73. So if a zero goes out and shoots 68 on a 68 course, basically he shot even par, even though it's two or four under, depending on the slope, or the par of the golf course. And then you use the differential, which is the slope rating. So you've got this, the overall golf course rating and then you have the slope rating and the slope rating is the severity of the up and downs and the all the canopies of the trees and the speed of the greens and again way way above my head when it comes to all those details but they take that information so you take what you shot minus the slope of the golf or the rating of the golf course minus the slope of the golf times the slope of the golf course and then you divide it by the average 1.1 or 0.113 and that's going to give you your differential. And the differential tells me how many, how many par over par or how many over the slope rating you were. Uh, like I said, it's a huge algorithm. You can check all this out on USGA.org. But again, what it allows you to do is you can play a, a golfer of your skill level on different golf courses. Um, I know I've heard years for years uh, single-digit players at Oakmont shoot in the 80s. Um, tough golf course with the church pew bunkers and everything up there. So, Steve, if you're wanting to get a handicap, uh, you can reach out to the Golf House of Tennessee. Uh, Lynn Howe does all the handicapping for the state. Uh, she can let you know what courses near you have the indexes and can get set up. You just punch your scores in, and it spits out the numbers and goes from there. So, definitely get your handicap set up. That way you can play in a lot of the Monday programs that you hear me talk about. Um, they are T ratings. So if you play as a seven handicap or lower, you'll play the back tees where the professionals play. If you're over 55 or an eight handicap and above, you get to move up one set of tees. And if you're over 65, you can move up to another set of tees. But again, it's based on handicap. But Steve, it's like I said, it's a complicated algorithm, but it basically tells us what you shoot compared to the average um, zero handicap. So this one comes in for Jeff. And Jeff, you couldn't hit me for a better time on this one. So Jeff was wanting to know some good putting drills. Well, last week, um, I got selected by Phil Kenyon, who is a European tour instructor, um, to do a five-day putting challenge for him. Um, it was a really cool concept. He, he did it uh, nationwide, reached out to a bunch of club pros um, and elite amateurs and asked us for our feedback to go through it. And the drills only took about 10 or 15 minutes a day, so it wasn't anything crazy. Um, the first drill, and I actually found that if you put them all together in one day, it's a great hour and a half session uh, to really go out and work on it. So Jeff, what he did, um, had us do is set up our tees on a, first we picked a 10-foot putt straight up the hill. 
and we set a ball gate drill. Now, you've heard me talk about the ball gate drill before, but you're basically going to put your uh, tees about two inches apart, just wide enough for a golf ball to fit through. And you're going to put your tee gate about a foot in front of your golf ball. So the ball's at 10 feet. Tees are, the tee gate is a foot in front of you, and then you got nine feet from there to the hole. And you're just going to roll 10 golf balls through that gate and just really keep track of how many make it through the gate and how many make it in the hole. Um, so getting a chance to kind of to do that just really sees can you hit it where you're lined up and can you hit it hard enough to make the 10-foot putt. So then the second day, uh, he had us do set up the same drill except with breaking putts. And we had to do one in a right to left manner and one in a left uh, right one right to left, one left to right manner. Um, and as I went through the contest or the, the test, I actually found that I firm my putts in from right to left and I die my putts more from left to right, which was a really weird concept because I'd never thought about me hitting them at different speeds. But as I did this test, that's what I started to notice um, as I was getting those breaks in. So again, same test, roll 10 balls through from each direction. And just keep count of how many make it through the gate and then how many make it through, uh, make it into the hole. Now the third day was a little bit more of... Um, distance control so we actually took the hole out of the mix and so what Phil had us do is set up a 10 foot putt with a one foot landing zone or stop zone if you will and it was basically whatever your your footage of putt was it was 10 percent so I put two tees 10 feet apart and then I put one more tee a foot from the last one so I had a one foot gaping and a 10 foot gaping I stood at the longest tee and tried to roll all 10 of them and stop them inside that one foot section. We did the same thing at 15 feet and 20 feet. So again, expanding 15 feet to a foot and a half and 20 feet to two feet. But just really getting a feel, could could I hit it the right distance? Um, and then the next drill was probably the coolest one I've seen. Uh, I've never thought about it this way as I've worked on putting for years. But you started at 20 feet, went 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 um, or actually start at 30 and move back. So it's five different putts. It's 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. And what you did is you putted to a hole from those distances and you kept a target or a cumulative number of the second putt you had. So you would put the first one and if you missed, you would then measure um, and of course, he ballparked it, just step it off by feet and kind of keep it running total. You didn't have to use a um, tape measure. But if you missed the first 30-footer by foot, then you had one foot. Then you putted the 40-footer and the 50 and back. Um, and he set a target goal for the tour to be around 18 feet. Um, so I thought that was really good. If you've got um, five putts and you leave them all at two feet um, left, then you would run 10, which would be well above the tour average. Ran them all at three, you run about 15, which is getting very close. But that was a really interesting drill because you were still putting to make, but after we'd done the speed control, we were trying to get our break and our speed married together, and those two become the most important. And then the final one, um, I've done this one for years, so it was really good to see this one in the mix. But you would put um, four golf balls from five different locations to a hole, but what you would do... Each location would be a 5-foot, a 10-foot, a 15-foot, and a 20-foot. And you would just keep a tally of the putts you made. Um, and he says a tour winner would make make about 100 feet of putts. 
um, just the average tour guy would make about 75 feet of putt. So just running those putts and it's 250 feet total. So, um, but you, again, you would have five, four footers or five, five footers, five, 10 footers, five, 15 and five, 20 footers, um, to, to go through the test. So it was really cool to see that and kind of keep that running total. Um, so Jeff, if you're looking for him, you can check out Phil Kenyon. Uh, he also deals with putt view. I've talked about their books before. That's how I actually got, uh, got to know him, uh, through that as I purchased one of their books a couple years ago on greed reading and really stuck. And so I've gotten on his mailing list and stuff like that from since then. Um, Next question coming in from Sam. Sam wants to know the difference between the elite amateur and the tour professional. Now, I'm assuming some of the sparks um, from this past uh, weekend, the Women's U.S. Uh, Open, and, and we saw Megan gone uh, tie for 14th at plus three, becoming low amateur. Uh, she played great for the weekend. Um, and so it got me really kind of thinking about it. And, you know, it, at that level, the amateurs coming out of college are really good not going to take anything away from them. But at the same time, they don't have the experience. They don't have the reps. Nobody really steps out of college and, and wins instantly on the PGA or LPGA Pro, uh, Tour, minus players like Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, and a few of those guys and girls um, that really stepped out. Um, I know even though Lexi didn't go to college, she came out early as a um, amateur and did pretty well as well. But really seeing the difference there got me thinking about it. And so I had to do a little research on this, but the last player on the PJ Tour to win as an amateur was Phil Mickelson in the 1991 Northern Telecom, Northern Telecom which has become the Tucson Open. Um, again, I remember seeing that amazing display he put on that week, and then after that he became a writer for Golf Digest and taught us how to skip golf balls off the water and hit the backward shots, and I started trying to do all that stuff then. Um, but then going back, before that, you had Scott Verplank in 1985 when the Western Open. In 1956, Doug Sanders won the Canadian Open. 54, Gene Littler won the San Diego Open. 1948, Frank Stranahan won the Miami Open. Frank also won the Doran Warbond Tournament in 1945. Uh, Dr. Kerry Middikoff in 1945 was in the North-South Open. And in 1945, Fred Haas won the Memphis Invitational. Um, so again, when you look at that list, you've got one name on there two times, but you've got eight players that are eight times an amateur has won on the PGA Tour. Um, so it's just something that's so hard to do. I know several years ago, there were a couple of guys straight out of college that did really well in the Corn Ferry Tour, um, and now they're all playing on the PJ Tour. But um, it's just, it's so different. An elite amateur plays a lot of golf, works out of the game, and, and plays well in state events, but the difference between the elite amateur and the Tour Pro is easily one or two shots around, which doesn't sound like much, Sam, to the average guy. But over the course of a week, that's, you know, four to eight shots. And that's the difference in four under wins the Women's U.S. Open this week. And Megan finishes seven shots back in 14th. So, I mean, that really just solidifies what I'm talking about. So, the elite amateur, although good, and most of which and all of which would probably beat me in a heads-up event right now, um, just because they're playing and practicing more. But if you took the 150th guy on the PGA Tour he's going to win more times than not against the elite amateur just because, again, seasoned veteran, got the, 
got the reps in, knows his game, um, and can get it around. So, well, everyone, that's going to kind of wrap it up for the week. I hope everyone gets out and plays some golf. Uh, I know the state open is going on at Greystone. I'll hope to have some updates on it later next week. But this is Paul Brandon with Believe in Tennessee Golf here on the Believe Podcast Network. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and raise on iTunes. You can also find your favorite directories, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminaire, TuneIn. You can follow me on Instagram at pbrandon21 or on Twitter at q. IC underscore golf pro. You can also find us at believe.com and at believe podcast. Get out, play some golf, enjoy the weeks. Uh, senior state opens next week. State open is this week. Um, state amateur is being played at council fire this year. So amazing tournament, uh, amazing golf course in Chattanooga. So if you haven't tried to qualify before, go ahead and jump on the Golf House Tennessee website, click on the TGA, start finding out when the signups are going to be. But everybody, get out, play some golf, keep those questions coming in. Y'all have a great week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.